0: It's that ability to say, I'm going to stop myself from tempting myself today. That's the real challenge with prosperity, stopping yourself from taking the easy out. And we all know that's hard in our personal and private lives. And of course, it's extremely hard for governments because democratic governments in particular face electors every four to five years. And so they have an incentive to make people happy in the short run.
1: Happy Friday, everyone. I'm here to wrap up your week with a look at a little something called the prosperity trap. On a personal level, it's pretty easy to understand. Let's say you have $50 and really need to buy some groceries. Spending all $50 on food makes a lot of sense. You're pretty hungry after all. But the thing is, you know you're going to need to eat next week too. So it makes sense to save a little bit of that $50. So eat a little bit less this week than you might like to. This kind of trade-off is a familiar one in our personal lives, but when we scale it up to the level of the global economy, things get complicated. According to my guest this week, political scientist Ben Ansell, this is what makes it so tough to address common threats like climate change. It's a problem he calls the prosperity trap.
0: The prosperity trap is that what makes us richer in the short run makes us poorer over the long haul. Temptations now can distract us from making investments that only pay off in the future, as anyone who has given up their gym membership will know. The starkest trade-off of all faces us with the challenge of climate change. To slow down global temperature rises, each country must be willing to accept short-term costs, even though the benefits may only come decades in the future. To reduce global emissions, we have to bring everyone on board Slowing down emissions is costly. It's not just the cost of producing solar panels or wind turbines. Whole industries, not least the fossil fuel sector, need to be fundamentally transformed, or more likely, shut down. And that means making sacrifices by consigning coal miners to unemployment, or decommissioning factories. But unless every country does this, it may be all for naught. After all, if everyone else is pursuing net zero, I might be tempted to guzzle gas, knowing my effect on the global climate will be negligible. And if everyone thinks like that, emissions will rise uncontrollably. Climate change is the greatest collective action problem of all. And our experience with climate change treaties shows just how strong these motivations are. Countries around the world signed the 1997 Kyoto Accord, but when push came to shove, they decided that the costs were too hard to bear. America signed it, but never ratified it. Canada left it when its oil production became too lucrative to forego. We're not doomed. The Paris Accord of 2015 has been much more successful.
1: You say that the Paris Accord of 2015 has been much more successful than the earlier Kyoto Accords. Why is that?
0: yeah, so the the Paris accord for your listeners is is the sort of most recent successful environmental treaty to deal with climate change. And we've had cop twenty five, cop twenty six six since, which mm-hmm. haven't maybe accomplished quite as much. Um, but the Paris Accord, uh, was that, you know, the last time we had a big agreement about reducing emissions, creating new targets. Uh, and the reason it succeeded was because it was pretty vague, which doesn't sound mm-hmm. like it's going to be you know, uh, the making of a great treaty. Um, but the contrast to that is the uh, Kyoto Accord, uh, and the Copenhagen Accord, which was in the middle, both of which largely failed. And they failed because they were really restrictive. Um, they made it very, very costly for countries to emit too much. And the problem was, this is international politics. So if you omit too much and the Kyoto Accord says, hey, hey, you, you've got to pay a large fine, you say, make me and indeed in the United States uh, the Kyoto Accord was signed but the Senate refused to ratify it so we didn't even get to the make me position but you know once Canada discovered the tar sands of Alberta and Saskatchewan you know lots and lots of natural resources in in oil and gas they weren't going to meet their emissions and so they just bailed out of the Kyoto Accord you can't make countries do what they want unless you are a very powerful country yourself who wants to enforce that in some way and that's the big challenge of, of uh, climate change that we face, which is that to do things that will make things better in the very long run, which you know is presumably a global increase in temperatures less than about two degrees Celsius, we all need to pay a whole bunch of costs now, right? All the costs are short-term, but the benefits are long-run. And that's the basis for any kind of prosperity trap, is we have to suck it up today for some kind of better outcome in the future. Uh And it's incredibly hard to enforce that with climate change because what every country does matters, but it matters by adding to the kind of global pool of carbon such that even if one country did the good thing on its own, right? So if the UK went carbon neutral tomorrow, I mean, Mm -hmm. didn't we never burn another piece of coal or wood in the country, it would have almost zero effect on, directly on global climate change, right? Mm. So, so that makes it really hard. Well, why should I pay the costs if right. me on my own it doesn't matter? And if right. in the long run, uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna heat up anyway. And so, what helped with the Paris Accord was sort of accepting that countries were gonna try and back out, and instead essentially trying to create a culture of improvement where people would set targets and they'd come back and they'd say, here's how we're doing on the target. Uh. There wouldn't be such clear opt-outs, but it would also be less binding than other treaties beforehand. So it would be a sort of more vague, obfuscatory treaty. And yet it's actually had much more success than these kind of hardline ones where people would say, look, I can't do it. It's not in my incentive to do it. And so the the climate has just warmed.
1: Well, I suppose we'll see over time how successful it is. Um, of course. I, I remain skeptical just in, because as you point out, climate change is sort of the ultimate example of why politics fail. Uh, it is the kind of uh poster child for a problem that is massive, and yet no individual actor or indeed any individual country seems to have strong incentives to make the kind of changes needed. You tie it in with this problem of the prosperity trap. And if I understand what you mean, prosperity, the idea of growing wealth, growing income, which many of us Want there's this trap because oftentimes the things that make us richer now make us poorer later, or you could say it the other way around too. Things that if I want to get richer later, sometimes I have to be poorer now, and that can be hard for me to do. This is a structural problem. Is this an inevitable problem in? The area of prosperity. Yeah,
0: I mean, look, every poet is a thief, and here I'm stealing from Aesop and the fable of the grasshopper and the ants. Right, the lazy mm. grasshopper who doesn't, you know, parties in the summer and and doesn't uh, save food for the winter, and the industrious ants. You know, I, I think I'm not saying anything really new here. What I'm what I am trying to note, though, is that growth, economic growth and sustainable economic growth, i.e. growing without burning the planet up, generally requires making investments. And any investment uh, requires you to forego some form of consumption today in the promise of more consumption in the future, right? And any of us who've joined a gym, (laughs) that's difficult, right? There are all kinds of reasons why we might not want to take the costs today, even though we might plausibly benefit in the future. And so a lot of prosperity is about how we lock ourselves into stability. There's a very famous, uh, you know, to use another kind of ancient Greek myth, you know, in in Homer, when Ulysses ties his hands to the mast Uh, he is sailing past the sirens and he wants to hear the sirens' beautiful voices. But he also knows that if he does, he will drive the ship to the sirens where everyone will die or be eaten or exactly how sirens kill you. And so essentially he has to constrain his ability to do that. He has to tie his hands to the mast. It's that ability to say, I'm going to stop myself from tempting myself today. That's the real challenge with prosperity. Stopping yourself from taking the easy out. And we all know that's hard in our personal and private lives. And of course, it's extremely hard for governments because democratic governments in particular face electors every four to five years. And so they have an incentive to make people happy in the short run. Uh, and in a way, it's it's a magical political outcome that net zero as an agenda has got as far as it has because it's all costs now, benefits in the future. And I think it's only occurred because there's an increasing social norm uh, in Europe and indeed in the US that we need to do something about climate change and people are willing to to take those costs.
1: Well, Ben, I I know your book well enough now to know that you're not going to end with some happy talk about how This is an easily solvable problem. But just point me towards an exit from the prosperity trap. Even if you were not going to walk me out the door, at least tell me where to look for the way out.
0: I I think the thing that has changed so dramatically is the other... way i think of solving politics which is by developing social norms now the, mm. the problem with social norms about climate change is is they don't enforce themselves right and of course what happens is every time al gore gets on a plane people say ha 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 there's al gore telling us not to do things and look he's on the plane mm. uh, you know and I, I get that problem but also we don't really expect these norms to be self-enforcing what they are is is a way to direct our expectations about what other people might do and what good and bad behaviors are uh, and I think we've achieved that uh, you know, in areas from racism to sexism to homophobia in really profound ways over the last 20 mm. or 30 years in Western Europe and North America. Uh, so we have shifted social norms about what good behaviors are. I think not everybody is going to follow what Greta Thunberg asks them to do, but I do think the generational change
1: in how people think about it, that's probably our last best hope on this. Well, Ben, thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed talking to you and you've given us a lot of traps to think about and hopefully we can find our way through them. Thank you so much, Michael, for having me. I hope we do. That's a wrap for the week, everyone. I hope Ben has given you something to chew on, a clear-eyed way to look at the challenges that face us, not as the fault of one politician or one party, but as deep conflicts that emerge from the very effort to solve problems collectively. It doesn't mean we should give up. It just means we need to be clear about the nature of how politics works and doesn't work and figure out better ways to communicate and collaborate. Speaking of collaboration, this week's episodes were written and produced by me and edited by Kayla Bissinger. Both of us are proud to be part of the LinkedIn Podcast Network, and both of us hope you'll come on back next week. Until then, leave us a rating or review, won't you? That will help others find the show, which I think would be really cool. I'm Michael Kovnat. See you Monday.